coming to you from the Motor City. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we wrap up our coverage of Forensic Pathology Fellowships with an interview with Dr. Stephanie Dean. Dr. Dean is the Program Director for the Maryland Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Baltimore. Join us as Drs. Lavity and Sung speak with Dr. Dean about her views on fellowship and the field of forensic pathology. Also, we regret to inform you that after today, Detroit's Daily Docket will be taking an indefinite hiatus. Our office is going through some big changes, and unfortunately, we cannot sustain making a podcast at this time. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. We had a great time recording, and we hope you had a great time listening. Thank you. Welcome back. We are continuing this new segment on Forensic Pathology Fellowships. We are showcasing different fellowship programs throughout the country and highlighting the experiences that they can offer. For sure, we are targeting pathology residents that are looking for a forensic fellowship, but even if you're not part of that group, there is value in hearing about the different ways we train. With that, our guest today is Dr. Stephanie Dean. Dr. Dean is an assistant medical examiner at the Maryland Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Baltimore. She's also the director of the Forensic Pathology Fellowship. Now, if we roll back the clock a little bit, she does have some local ties to our office, and in fact, she was a medical student that rotated with us. With that, Dr. Dean, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dr. Dean, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming fellowship director? Sure. So, as Dr. Sung alluded to, I uh, actually was born and raised in Michigan. I grew up in Livonia, Michigan, uh, which is a city just outside of Detroit. I I went to undergrad at Michigan State University and then went on to medical school at Wayne State University in Detroit. And right around my college uh, years and medical school, I developed an interest in forensic pathology, um, which is somewhat rare. I think a lot of people get interest kind of later on during their education. But I was afforded the opportunity to do an internship at a local crime lab, and it was during that internship that I actually visited the Wayne County ME office and actually saw Dr. Lavity. She was the first medical examiner that I met, so um, so that was uh, kind of my introduction to, to forensic pathology. I went on to volunteer at the local ME office up in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, which was ironically where I then ended up full circle and uh, had my first job out of fellowship. So that was a pretty cool connection there as well. So throughout that whole process, I have always been interested in teaching and mentoring. Um, I began assisting with resident rotators when I came back to Baltimore and helped coordinate their rotations through the office. I also became involved uh, with a mentorship program with a local high school called Notre Dame Preparatory High School and went there to do some introductory lectures to their high school students as well. So throughout the whole process, I've really just been inspired by the people who took the time and effort to train 
uh, and teach me and encourage me through that through that whole process. So, and that's where I kind of ended up was uh, eventually becoming the fellowship director, which has always been a goal of mine. Well, that leads very nicely into our next question, which is, during all of this, did you have a mentor or mentors? And if so, what was the best piece of advice or words that they gave you? So yes, uh, fortunately, I have had many mentors along each step of my journey, ranging all the way from, as I alluded to, uh, in undergrad, I had some great people that encouraged me to pursue a career in forensic pathology, um, including everyone at the Wayne County office. Um, I've had uh, great mentors in residency who, again, encouraged me and, and helped me along the way. So I did my residency actually at the University Hospital for the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, and then I went on to do my fellowship at the uh, Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for the state of Maryland. So in residency, our autopsy director, which was Dr. Leslie Litsky, was a great mentor. Um, in fellowship, we had, you know, all of the dedicated, hardworking forensic pathologists that I now work with, um, most of them in Baltimore, uh, are, were all great mentors to me. And then also when I went on to practice, I had some, some great mentors at, at my first job as well. So two biggest pieces of advice or words of wisdom that I received throughout the whole process were, first was that there's really no right or wrong uh, or less right and wrong in our field uh, as opposed to many, many others. There's lots of gray areas um, and lots of opinions, obviously. So um, keep that in mind. And also I was told once when I was kind of having a difficult situation I was told uh, something similar to one of my favorite quotes, uh, which is actually by Eleanor Roosevelt, which is, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. So those are my words of wisdom throughout the process. And those are very good words of wisdom, even just in general life. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now we're going to move and we're going to just let you take over and discuss your fellowship program. Great. Um, So uh, I'm obviously a little biased, um, having trained in Baltimore and and came back uh, to the area. We have one of the longest running fellowship programs in the United States. Uh, We are a state system with a centralized office. And in the year 2020, we performed around 6,000 autopsies to give you an idea of the size uh, of the office. We are a big, busy metropolitan office. We currently have four fellow positions and we will be participating in the match for the 2024-25 fellowship year. Uh, We have elective rotations in all the required areas, so anthropology, crime lab, uh, toxicology, which is in-house. We have our own in-house toxicology lab, which is fantastic. And we also have additional rotations through cardiovascular pathology. We work very closely with the Institute of Cardiovascular Pathology in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and then also in neuropathology. Um, We have the neuropathologists at Johns Hopkins uh, who come over and and help us with our neuropath exams. In terms of staffing, we currently have 14 medical examiners on staff. 
that is including the chief and our two deputy chief medical examiners. Um, We do have some upcoming retirements and we're not immune to the need for forensic pathologists. So it's, it's no secret. You can look at the National Association of Medical Examiners website If you are a trainee in forensic pathology right now, the world really is your oyster. You can pretty much go wherever you want. I would say by far the biggest strength of our program is the variety of cases that we see and that you're exposed to. So we see everything from rural and urban deaths all the way to the extremes of temperature, uh, water, the farming accidents um, in the kind of western part of the, the state. So uh, because of the wide range and the wide geography, we see a lot of different types of cases. And from a training perspective, that is by far one of the biggest strengths of the program. I always tell trainees or people that are, who are interviewing with us that, uh, again, I'm biased, but when I came out of training, you know, we always see things that we never have seen before. And that's just the nature of our job, which is actually kind of one of the coolest things about our job is that we see just, you know, there's, you're always learning and there's always going to be something that you've never seen before. But I think the foundation that we provide uh, allows trainees to basically approach any case with that strong foundation. So I always tell people that when I left, I felt confident that I could approach anything, at least know what to do with any particular case. I may not have seen that exact thing before, but um, you can feel confident that you will come out with a very strong foundation. Now, obviously, there's no way of necessarily controlling the types of cases a fellow may see, but is there a list of cases that you definitely would want them to be exposed to? You mentioned that you get some urban and rural experiences. Do they have to do X number of farming type accidents, X number of homicides, so on and so forth? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, We don't really have a set uh, amount that the fellows have to do. Um, We do keep track of the number and the types of cases that they do throughout the year periodically. Um, So we do quarterly evaluations. And as a part of those quarterly evaluations, we will have them submit their case logs to make sure that they are getting a good variety and um, the volume that they're doing. So so we don't really have a set number per se that they have to do, um, but we really try and make sure that they get a really good variety of, of cases that they see. Do you get other learner groups rotating through your office like medical students and pathology residents? We do. So we have a strong partnership with all of the regional institutions uh, that are by us, and that includes Johns Hopkins, the University of Maryland, uh, Walter Reed Medical Center, and Howard University. So we currently have residents that come from each of those institutions, roughly anywhere from two residents to sometimes four residents per month will be with us. So uh, there are some additional rotators that will be there. We do have medical student electives as well. That was somewhat disrupted by COVID, but I think that they are trying to bring that back into play. Do you have any didactic lecture series uh, either just geared toward the fellow or perhaps more broad for the residents and medical students? 
We do. So we generally uh, have our didactic series, which is in the first one and a half to two months of the year so that the fellows get the majority of their training didactic-wise during the first two months of their training. And then they get a uh, kind of, they'll have some lectures scattered throughout the year, kind of on more advanced topics, but their core lectures take place within those first two months. And the way that we structured it this year, which worked out really well for them, and we got good feedback, was that we actually had a dedicated lecture day, so one day throughout the week, where they would have anywhere from two to four lectures in in one day, so they could just focus on, on the didactic learning for that day, and as opposed to either having to have a lecture in the morning and finish that and then get downstairs for cases or vice versa, um, having to finish their case and then coming upstairs uh, in the afternoon. So that is, that's how we've structured it so far. During those first two months, the rotating medical students or residents, if they are interested, they're always welcome to attend the lectures, but it's mainly geared toward the fellow training. What I find really interesting so far is that our two fellowship programs actually are very similar, I think, without it being intentional. Yeah. Um, we are in both very large cities, but it makes me feel really good about the direction that we're heading in, including with the focusing on procedures and lectures the first two months of the fellowship. Um, it makes me feel really good about where we are. Good. Yeah, I think that the way that we decided to do it that way, too, was based on the feedback from previous fellowship years. So we really do take that into consideration and we try and listen to the feedback and the evaluations that the fellows give us in our program at the end of the year. And they really did a lot of fellowship classes of the past uh, really were requesting almost that their didactic training is heavily organized toward the beginning of the year because that's when they're seeing the cases for the first time. So to have that, again, that foundation at the beginning was really important to them so that they knew how to approach different types of cases. Dr. Dean, because you are the fellowship director and you received the feedback from your graduating fellows, if you were looking for a fellowship today, what are some of the things that you value or that you would be looking for in a program? That's a great question. I'm not that far removed, so I do remember (laughs) what I was looking for, which hasn't changed much. It actually was similar to what I was looking for uh, for my job as well, because I think, again, we're an ever-learning field of medicine, just like most fields of medicine, but at least my mentality going into both fellowship, uh, even, even residency, residency fellowship and beyond uh, was that I really personally wanted to be at a really busy office where I was able to see and do as much as possible. My outlook on it was that I get one year of intense training and I really just want, again, see and do as much as I possibly can so that I can be prepared to practice basically wherever I would want to in the future. So I think that that would be still my mentality, just because that's mostly my personality, I think. Um, But uh, knowing that I had an interest in doing this for so long, I really just, I wanted it to, um, to kind of have the, I kind of wanted to be immersed in the experience as much as possible. Mm -hmm. 
when you transitioned from fellow to staff, what was one thing that you wished you at least learned or knew about in moving to a higher level of responsibility? That's a really good question. I would have to say that in transitioning from a trainee to an attending, um, now I had a bit of a different experience. I would imagine that the experience for somebody that's staying on at a larger office might be a little bit different. I at least was able to, I was, I removed myself from the Baltimore office and was able and went elsewhere for my first job, which ultimately I think was a really good experience because it forced me to take my security blanket off (laughs) and make those really tough decisions and um, get my feet wet. Granted, I still had the support of my colleagues where I ultimately practiced my first job, but I was the sole person that was responsible for each and every case that I performed. So I think grasping that for fellows and training is a little, that transition can be a little tough, you know, because they are always used to leaning on somebody, leaning on an attending or, uh, you know, the somebody who's overseeing them. And we spend so much time being in training and having people oversee what we do that that can be a very jarring transition. But I think that really forcing yourself to do that and make your decisions and uh, be confident in your decision making, I think is probably was both challenging, but also the most like a very rewarding part of my journey as well. Okay, now we're going to shift gears a bit and talk about forensic education in general in the United States. What are the experiences with forensic pathology education in your area or office? And do you think medical schools and residencies are providing adequate instruction? So as I alluded to a little while ago, we do have medical student elective rotations and and we do have the residents who come over for their required forensic pathology rotation. In terms of lectures, I have given a few guest lectures for interest groups um, or by request usually. So it's it's not something currently that they have as a required uh, element of their medical school training. I personally, again, I'm, I'm biased, but I, I personally think that we can do better at teaching medical students about forensic pathology and pathology in general. I think there's a big resistance to talk about death, which unfortunately is inevitable and people, uh, you know, including doctors need to know how to take care of their patients, both in life and death. So I think required rotations through uh, pathology in medical school could be helpful. It could be a start and, uh, and at least a required lecture about maybe just death certification. If we could get a required lecture on forensic pathology, that would be preferable <laughs> if we could somehow work that into the curriculum. And also I think things like internships and volunteer programs, which helped me when I was coming up through the process for undergrad students could be helpful as well. We know that you went to Wayne State University Medical School here in Detroit. And so 
as a part of your pathology course, you received a lecture in forensic pathology with a little bit on death certification. And we've already been telling our audiences that death certification is not taught in medical school unless it is incorporated into the forensic pathology lecture. And that's not even a given. Uh, and sure. so it is one area in which it's vital. I mean, a doctor is going to have to complete a death certificate at some point, and it has ramifications for criminal investigations and for families. And there's no instruction at all. And so at the very least, using maybe that as an avenue as a way to get forensic pathology instruction into the medical school curriculum is maybe the way that we have to be going about this. I think so. I think focusing on just death certification, which benefits all doctors. And um, I think pretty much every doctor at some point in their career is going to be handed a death certificate and asked to fill it out. So I think at the very least, not that we're, you know, the death certificate police, as we sometimes say, um, but we probably are one of the most qualified people to teach others how to fill out, you know, the death certificate. So I think that absolutely, I think that's a great place to start. Okay, now let's just talk about only the Forensic Pathology Fellowship training in the United States. What do you think works well, and what do you think could be improved upon? So that's a great question. Um, I think in terms of what is currently working well, we are fortunate in the sense that we have a, well, I guess it's a double-edged sword, but we have a very small connected world. It's a small forensic world out there. So I think advocacy and mentorship amongst forensic pathologists is actually very strong. Uh, we have connections in many different offices, which, which I think helps people out when we hear somebody is interested. We can usually put them in contact with somebody that couldn't help them in their process. So I think that's working well. That's where our small little community actually works well for us. But I also think that getting our profession noticed by the public, uh, especially in the era of things like podcasts and documentaries and books, uh, has really helped us get out there in the real world. And people, I think, are beginning to understand a little bit more about what we do. So I think those things are, are working well. I think in terms of the challenges that we face in, you know, specifically training in the U.S. here, I think a lot of trainees will find that people will try and sway you in different directions throughout the entire process of your training. So there will be people who want to convince you to go into internal medicine or cytology or some other area of medicine because they'll see what potential a lot of, you know, a lot of these individuals have. You know, people tried to sway me into a lot of different subspecialties as well. So I think that's a challenge. I think we are facing across the nation increasing caseloads with decreasing funding. Um, I think the ACGME is doing a better job, although we can still it can still be improved, but they're doing a better job at recognizing the intricacies of our field. Uh, that includes the application of the milestones, the imposed case limits, uh, things like that. And also a huge challenge is just, or we are such a specialized field that it takes a lot of training to finally, finally practice. <laughs> so, um, and a lot of people I think might lose interest along that way or, or decide to do something different because it takes so long. Another thing that 
I, another big challenge that goes back to uh, the the decreasing funding or the increasing caseloads is, I think, unfortunately, we're losing a portion of our teaching force to smaller offices with lower caseloads and better pay, um, and also experienced forensic pathologists to retirement. So, um, you know, it's great and you can be very passionate about teaching, but you really need the support of a team behind you. So I think we need to invest in the workforce of the training institutions um, above all at this point. I think it's pretty critical. So those are some of the challenges. I think you also asked what could be improved. Similar to what we alluded to before, but I think collaboration between offices is going to be important going forward. Um, we're going to have to kind of think of some innovative and different non-traditional ways of training uh, fellows. Um, I think also the testimony and acceptance of fellows in court can maybe be improved. It's tough sometimes because by the time that they do, you know, we try to get them to do homicides pretty quickly so that hopefully they can get to testify by the time that they're they're finished but now especially with the covid backlog uh, that's certainly a challenge to get them into court by the time that they leave so that can be a a big shock (laughs) in real life i think things like well-being and burnout recognition and resources is important um you know i think throughout our whole training we just we really just keep pushing and pushing and pushing through so that we make it to the end and then we're finally practicing what we want to practice and I think sometimes people when they actually look at what we see and do on a daily basis it can be challenging for people and to recognize well-being and and burnout I think is important so so I think (laughs) I think there's there's a lot to be excited about I think there's a lot uh to look forward to and a lot of opportunity, but I think there's also a lot of challenges that we face, which is probably no, you know, nothing different than you guys are facing as well. I mean, you have brought up so many good points. And I think one of the things that really no one really thinks about is really how difficult a forensic pathology fellowship is. I mean, it is physically challenging. I mean, you Mm -hmm. are not just sitting there looking at slides or, I mean, you are physically performing autopsies. And when you're doing that on a daily basis, it's something that I think a lot of people don't consider. It's intellectually difficult because you're just not focusing now on one area like breast pathology. You now, I mean, you have to know all diseases, all drugs, all trauma. And there is that emotional and mental component. And even though this is something we've chosen to do, we are just surrounded by death every day. And when you interact with the families and they may be in anger or denial or, you know, you're interacting with lawyers and you feel like you're being personally attacked, that it can be very mentally difficult. And I think that burnout is a very real thing, but it is something that people do not want to actually talk about. And I'm hoping in the future here uh, and with this upcoming generation that this is, we can have a much more open and honest discourse about it and actually do things about it. Because I think there are things that we can be doing for each other uh, to mitigate all of these challenges. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, I think a lot of people, yeah, you get so focused in, in just training and and gathering all of the knowledge that you need to do these cases. And, and then, like you said, I mean, when you don't necessarily think about the physical, mental and emotional toll that it can take. And when you have done it for 10, 20, 
20 plus years. So, you know, I, I think the ACGME actually has kind of forced people to start looking at that as well. Um, and they're challenging programs with with coming up with a well-being curriculum and, you know, well-being resources to offer or at least give or, or let the fellows know that they are available. And while it might not be helpful because you're so into the training portion of it, I think people might find it useful beyond that. And I think actually it can be applied to the the staff and the teaching staff uh, as well, which um, probably needs it more, quite honestly. And so I think this uh, leads us into our very last question. And I think you set this one up perfectly in that there are a lot of people in the field going into the smaller offices and leaving the teaching and working force, and there's a significant portion that are going to be retiring within the next five to ten years. And so I think forensic pathology and its instruction is going to be, it's going to look different in the near future. And so where do you see forensic pathology and its instruction heading in this next decade? Yeah, so that's a Great question. Um, and I really did have to think about this for, for some time. Um, and I think going back to before, I think we really start, we need to start um, thinking of different and innovative ways to train uh, our fellows. And I think that can start with collaborating between different offices, which I think is a good start. Again, I think there needs to be investment into the workforce of the training institutions. And I think that the recognition and respect that we get both in the medical field and from our local and state governments that we work for uh, needs to be emphasized. Um, When it comes to the case requirements that have been set forth by the ACGME for the fellowship training, I'm a little conflicted with how I feel about um, how I feel about that. I think, on the one hand, I understand protecting the the fellows and and the number of cases that they should be doing at 250, which is a lot of cases, obviously. Um, but I think to prepare them for what they're going to face in the real workforce, which most of us are probably doing 300 or more cases, at least in the larger offices. So I think to be more realistic, I think it should probably be more around the 300 range, which I get is only 50 cases more. But but I still think that just it, it would prepare fellows uh, for what the reality is. And the reality is that, you know, that we are really across the country facing increasing caseloads. And while you might be able to um, escape that in some of the smaller offices, I think even they are feeling the pressure as well. So I think that things like, you know, virtual lectures and uh, podcasts and and other alternative ways of gaining knowledge, I think are going to be really important going forward as well, just because of the nature of how everything is moving uh, forward with, um, you know, with technology and, and doing things kind of this asynchronous lifestyle that that we've started to take on. So the good news (laughs) is that I think, you know, the last few fellowship classes that we've had um, have produced such enthusiastic and intelligent individuals that are entering our field, and they're they're not afraid to ask questions and stand up for themselves. So this new generation 
of forensic pathologists that are entering the workforce, I think, will ultimately be our best asset going forward. I think that it will kind of propel us, um, hopefully, into the next generation. So. so, Dr. Dean, thank you very much for coming on with us. I think we had some excellent answers and some good insight into how your office works. And thank you very much for coming on with us. Of course. Thank you guys so much for the opportunity. As we conclude our interview with Dr. Stephanie Dean about her fellowship program in Baltimore, we actually have some sad news for our listeners. First, I want to thank everyone for joining us with our podcast. It has been an incredible journey, but we have to step back and take a pause. There have been some recent changes in our office that require us to devote some energy and attention to those areas, and because of that, we felt it best to put a hold on our current season. I too would like to thank all of you for your support and for listening throughout these seasons. Uh, This has been quite a journey that we've been very proud to share with you. I personally want to thank the two people sitting here in the studio with me, Dr. Lachman Sung and Dr. Omar Reyes. Uh, When I first approached them uh, with this idea many years ago, We were able to bring it out and actually make it happen in the way that we wanted, and I am incredibly proud and honored to have worked with them on this project. Uh, This is uh, definitely a sad day for me. I wasn't expecting to record this too soon. I'd like to thank all our listeners and audience who uh, we value and appreciate their uh, listening, and I hope uh, we could spread some awareness to our field and I hope at some point we'll be able to uh, record more episodes when things come back to normal in our office. For those who are following us on Instagram, the page will be still updated on a weekly basis and we will still share interesting findings with you. I would also like to thank all of the experts and professionals who participated in the podcast. They led us into their lives and their career uh, to give insight on what they do and how they do it. And we could not have done this without their participation and support. Thank you again for all of you who have listened to us and who have followed us through this podcast. It has been an incredible and wonderful exploration of forensic pathology And it is our hope to continue with you in the future, but for now, we have to say goodbye.